0: Hey, what's up everybody? This is Dr. Andy Wilczak. This week, I'm speaking with Dr. Andrea Myron, Assistant Professor of Political Science at Wilkes University. This is Episode 39 of Untenure Tracks.
1: so much Andy for this uh, opportunity and for uh, giving back now that you have tenure (laughs) and uh, you you know how important it is for uh, for us on our way up to get any form of help and um, opportunity to talk about what we are uh, we are doing so uh, my story is a bit different maybe compared to uh, other people in academia, because I only came here uh, in the US for my PhD. So I'm, uh, I was previously trained in Europe. I came here with a bit of a different academic background. Um, so two main two major projects that I'm excited about, and then I'm just going to mention one idea I recently had, Okay. and I will start working on it. So. Um, For seven years at Boston University for my PhD, I studied transitional justice. So transitional justice has kind of two fields, Um, one that deals with countries that come out of uh, authoritarianism or dictatorships, and one that deals with countries that come out of genocide or civil war. So I, coming from Eastern Europe, I focused more on post-authoritarian, post-totalitarian transitional justice. Namely, how do countries from this region um, uh, respond to their past? How do they address the uh, legacy of human rights abuse committed by the former uh, communist governments? And uh, I basically compare and contrast the countries in the region. Um, Eastern Europe did not do that much. The the path they took, uh, it's called lustration. So it's a word that sounds fancy, but basically it comes from Latin. Lustratio means purification. So how do we purify the system? How do we... Um, vet the system? How do we uh, uh, get rid of uh, people who committed abuses in the former regimes? So that that's a really interesting topic. Um, I spent many years just comparing and contrasting different strategies. Sadly, uh, in the end, it didn't really work for any countries in the region. So some countries were very radical. So basically, they kicked out all former uh communist officials and they wanted new faces new blood New. they went very extreme and not only i'm not only referring to political positions but also for instance academic positions like you know in czech republic you are not allowed to be a provost or a president of a university if you had any affiliations with the prior regime Hmm. so they went kind of very radical very extreme in other countries like my own like romania Nothing happened. they basically let it they let everyone um, back in um, it it's very hard to assess the success of this policy. It is true that the countries that adopted adopted more radical policies uh, were able to implement uh faster, you know, democratic reforms. Um, But other than that, in all the countries I studied, there was a lot of controversy, a lot of people who were really unsatisfied, a lot of people who wanted other measures. Um, So, you know, uh, I I cannot really say it was a very uh, optimistic topic, Nevertheless, important for newer generations to, to know about what happened and to understand its, um, mm-hmm. its relevance. So that's the one story from the past. After I started uh, working at Wilkes, I got more and more interested in something completely different. Uh, energy policy, environmental policy, and in particular, fracking. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, in Pennsylvania, this is a really big story. And, you know, there was a lot in the news. People were talking about that Wilkes. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I connected the dots. And I remember that a while before I started at Wilkes in 2014, um, I have heard of some very violent riots uh, in Eastern Europe against uh, uh, shell gas um, companies. Mm -hmm. And I just thought, is there a way to connect these two stories? Now, in the U.S., Shell, guess it's kind of considered a success story. Some people even call it a revolution, right? Of course, it differs from state to state. Mm -hmm. And that's one thing you learn when you start going deeper into this um, huge differences between states. However, overall, uh, the the narrative is that it worked, it brought a lot of money, a lot of jobs. But obviously, there are uh, a lot of... um, A lot of people who are very skeptical raised a lot of questions, but it never got that bad for, you know, for riots to happen, for uh, uh, mass protests. And then basically my story is I'm trying to see why what happened in the U.S. could not be replicated anywhere else in the world, and specifically in Eastern Europe. Why this shell gas revolution did not work? What went wrong? And I go over several different factors. Shall I go into a bit more details?
0: Yeah, yeah, definitely.
1: I guess what I I mainly want to get to are these riots, Mm -hmm. uh, but it's more complicated than that. So as I uh, started the idea of an article, it's now clearer and clearer that it will need to be a book because there are so many different um, pieces of the puzzle here. Um, and the first one would be um, advancements in technology. Basically, here the technology is relatively cheap. We also have the know-how. We have the engineers. But when we talk about exporting all this, suddenly the costs get much much higher. Mm-hmm. Uh, energy price plays pay the, played a very important role as well. Um, so 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 here. The shale gas revolution happened while um, uh, oil was relatively expensive. So in 2014, it was around 107, 117. By 2015, when they started thinking about other parts of the world, it dropped to half of that, to 40 to 55. And now we all know what happens now. Mm -hmm. So it's it's actually an interesting discussion because uh, right now we know many shale gas companies might go bankrupt uh, based on what's happening in the Oil industry, but I'm, I'm still going back to the basics. I'm trying to understand why, right? What went wrong? Um, then the shale gas resources. This is the part that more geology than political science. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the, the basically, there um, uh, there is less gas in Europe, and it's deeper, mm-hmm. more, much more difficult to to uh, explore. There are also the policies, you know, how much the government intervened and how many benefits this company had. And finally, this hostile public opinion, mm-hmm. which is kind of the core of what I was interested in. So I was interested in seeing how come such a, a powerful movement emerged in Eastern Europe against fracking. Um and I went out and I interviewed many people, maybe around 60 people, uh, primarily Romania, but also in some neighboring countries. Um, and again, I was mostly interested in those riots. So to, to make a very long story short, basically what started as an interest for uh, something that seemed more like energy or environmental policy ended up being more a, a work on... Um, Human rights abuse and um, a very, very um, violent state intervention in in something that should not have been, uh, you know, subject to uh, to abuse. Long story short, um, this American companies that uh, are famous for uh, uh, for exploring shale gas went back. Went back to Eastern Europe, they tried to just explore uh, resources there without giving any notice, without any public information, without any public consultation. They just started drilling and people got crazy. And we are talking about people in very remote villages. I visited maybe the poorest regions in Romania. I went, if you imagine... um, visiting parts of the world where, you know, there's no cell phone reception, there's no GPS you can use, uh, the the roads are bad, people are surviving. They, they have no revenue to really uh, uh, make a profit or to gain something. They, they just survive from day to day, from month to month. It's, it's extreme poverty. It's actually mm-hmm. the poorest uh, region in the European Union. And then it was kind of, shocking but in a positive way to see what a um how uh uh aware they are of anything everything that has to do with the environment and protecting their land so for them basically ultimately um if you take away their water if uh you know uh there are even um the smallest concerns that the quality of their water will decrease or that their water will be contaminated, it's it's over. It's over. They can no longer live the way their ancestors live for hundreds and hundreds of years. So they saw um, fracking as an attack to the way... uh, they they have been living for uh, for many years and um, it got very emotional and very crude, if you want. Mm-hmm. I have, uh, you know, discussed with several different people, with older people, younger people, very, very emotional stories uh, of how they basically tried first to talk to the authorities. No one listened. And then basically they chained themselves to the uh um um whatever
0: um like the machines equipment, yeah the,
1: you know, whatever equipment the uh, company was using and they protested for weeks and weeks. Uh and while that happened now suddenly media got attention of it. So they became the you know an entire country and then many other countries were looking at them trying to understand uh, how long they will Uh, make it, and it all ended with very, very severe human rights abuses, a lot Mm of beatings, um, a lot of people being hurt. uh, And then they basically instituted a state of, um, it's interesting right now, because right now in pandemics, we are all in a state of necessity, or basically these people lived uh, with the police in front of their home for for many weeks. They were Mm -hmm. unable to leave their home uh, because they were um, considered uh, dangerous. So ultimately, that's the project I'm primarily working on. But as you, you see, it kind of transitioned, it, and I let it go. I, I was not too stressed about the fact that it changed. I just followed the lead. I followed the, the interviews, and it went from being a story about shell gas into a story primarily about abuse. Uh, and, uh, you know... Basically, what what well, I think what really touched me is how these very <coughs> vulnerable uh, people have been I- impacted. Mm-hmm. We are talking about maybe the poorest region in a poor country, um, in in already in a poor country in Europe, and the most vulnerable citizens that are not only abandoned uh, but are basically abused.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. <laughs> We were talking before we started recording about um, this criminology conference coming up, and you, you pulled the fast one on me, I think, trying to trick me, saying, no, 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 my stuff is so boring, it doesn't fit. <laughs> and then, <laughs> And then you got me right where you wanted me and laid out these two separate projects that both 100% fit into the scope of this conference. Very clearly... I I think they're both projects about social movements and social change, and (laughs) you're you're talking about people like chaining themselves to this, you know, drilling equipment and having the police parked out in front of their houses and (laughs) all this stuff. Of course, of course, Andrea, people would love to hear about your work.
1: It totally, much
0: better. It totally fits into this.
1: Contradict you, but. uh,
0: It 100% fits into this. Um, I've got so many questions. Um, I think I want to start simply um, to go back to the, the transitional justice part of it um, or that your, your dissertation work. That was your dissertation, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so could you give me some examples of countries that were on... I know that you said Romania basically didn't do <laughs> anything, which is interesting in, a, in and of itself about, like, why did they just choose not to um what are some examples of countries that were on the extreme end where even like they're purging i guess their universities and and things like that who who did that
1: so the way i um quantified things and of course different researchers might my researchers might uh, Uh, have different conclusions on this Uh, Czechoslovakia now being separated in two countries so they started early early 1990s used to be one large country now is the the Czech Republic and Slovakia not to be confused with Slovenia (laughs) it's uh, um, this is uh, just a a joke I, I, I love to make in my European politics class um so uh these two countries um basically took it more to the extreme. They created these two lists and uh-huh. basically said, Well, if you are part of the former regime former communist regime in any capacity, let's say from a president of the communist council to uh maybe mm, uh you know involved in a publishing house, for instance. Uh, then you have no access to the second list of positions in the new uh, democratic government, mm-hmm. and not only government. So again, they went very far. They went into civil society. You could not you know, be part of the civil society. You could not be part of any educational institution, research institution. like You cannot run an archive, obviously, oh, wow. or something like that. So that was very tough. It was very tough. They also implemented very soon. So they started very soon, early 1990s, and they did cleanse the system. Uh, Just that even in in the Czech Republic and in Slovakia, there are many people still dissatisfied with how the system works. It was very hard to quantify, to Mm. bring evidence. The big problem with this uh, story is that you rely a lot on what, um, the communist, the former communist government, um, left behind in archives. Right? You have to work with the with those documents. You have to rely on that data. And I forgot to mention a big part of the story. Um, a very big part of the story is that also former communist uh, secret police o- uh, collaborators were to be excluded from public life. And in general, so the people who uh collaborated with the secret police Mm -hmm. uh they were um a a very big category uh that should have been subjected to this law so basically people did not want to see any more people who either ran this or you know had positions of power in the former uh communist secret police or collaborated with it mm-hmm. and this collaboration is very tough, very difficult to assess because some people volunteered like they went yeah. to the secret police and just tell on their friends mm-hmm. um, others were forced through blackmail to tell on their friends um, and others are in a very gray area where it's very hard to understand what were the reasons mm-hmm. So this is when things get very messy and complicated. But ultimately, again, if I, we are to go back to your question and just come up with the extreme, I would say Czech Republic, Slovakia went very hard, where they were very um, decisive in their move. And on the other hand, Romania and Albania on the other spectrum didn't do much. And that's primarily because in Romania and Bulgaria, the former communists took over power in the 90s so they had no incentive to pass laws that will <laughs> illustrate themselves or get rid of themselves
0: so yeah okay yeah i was going to ask because i mean for countries that were more extreme it seems like you're you're throwing in people who were just sort of like career bureaucrats um who don't really care who's in charge with yeah. people who are are more died in the wall ideologues You know what I mean? and Yeah,
1: absolutely.
0: And from, like, I've been doing a lot of research on, like, revolutions lately. And so, like, I totally see why you would want to purge, like, why this, as this regime change happens, why you would want to purge everybody who was affiliated with the past um, uh, from there. But then sacrificing, like you know i'm just a career archivist (laughs) who has has not had my head out of a book for the last 25 years why should why should that person be fired like it's it's just i it'd be it would be interesting to see how those conversations played out right among like leadership to see how they made those decisions
1: absolutely and what so sadly again i was talking about how the law did not really bring the impact or the results people hoped for that's kind of one major line of criticism, when people actually looked at how the law worked. So several, not so, maybe calling them innocent would be too far, but several people who did not play a major role were immediately eliminated. They struggled financially, while high-ranked officials somehow managed to stay in power. Or, you know, my favorite thing, they brought their children <laughs> uh, into play, so that's um, yeah. Uh, sadly, how it worked in practice: a mm-hmm. lot of collateral uh, uh, damage, but not really uh, getting rid of the people who uh, did harm or were responsible for sending people to jail or were responsible for for human rights abuse.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm I'm curious, and this may be like an example of one of the really dumb questions that I warned you about um how do these, <laughs> these conversations happen today like how do people in in Romania or other former black countries talk about um the past i i guess not in terms of like you know the the evils of the soviet union but i think on the ground like trying to to move forward into the future are, are there con- there must be conversations like that how do, how do people in government now reflect on that past
1: Actually, it, this is an excellent, excellent question. Uh,
0: Stop it. <laughs>
1: so, um, sadly, the younger generation doesn't even know what happened. So, one major problem we have is that, the you know, um, kids who are currently in school, they, they were born after 89. They have completely different other priorities. A lot have passed. So for a big chunk of the population is no ro- or longer relevant. Um, then, um, since 30-something years have, have passed, we also see another segment of the population who is very nostalgic of those times. Uh, so they actually uh, look back, and they would like that regime to be reinstituted. And that's another very interesting um kind of phenomenon I thought about and I, I tried to study and understand because it, it blows my mind, but it's, it's, it's there. Uh, and my quick conclusion regarding this segment, I'm not going gonna, gonna to try to give you my, uh, it's, it's not my idea, I have found it uh, in an article. It's basically these people are not so much nostalgic of the communist regime, but of their youth. Yeah, <laughs> uh, they they were young. It, it was the peak of their life, and they they kind of overlap the two, uh, enhance nostalgia. I don't think it explains the full phenomenon, but definitely part of it. Yeah, uh, and then uh, there is a, 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 another segment which it's kind of, in terms of age. It's more like where I fit. Uh, people who are very young, but still not. Kids, they have a political conscience. They understand the differences, or they they studied what happened, and they don't want the countries, uh, their country, to go back, repeat the same mistakes. And they were the ones who really wanted some vetting or some cleansing, and wanted to get rid of the past. And even so, you, and that conversation still happens. They would be the ones who would say, "It's because we didn't do much." Uh, we couldn't uh, get too far, or we couldn't implement this reform or the other. It's because we kept the old uh, kind of communist uh, uh, people in in power. This would be the conversation, for instance, in uh, in in Romania. Uh, sadly, when I look at the politicians and their rhetoric, um, you know, first of all. No. They, they have more the interest to maintain the status quo and maintain their privileges. They are not really interested in, in deep reforms. Uh, the part that kind of amazes me is how, again, many um, people who are currently in power are sons of da- or daughters of the former communist officials. So I guess what's interesting is that there was a, uh, the, the system found a way to replicate itself. I'm not sure if this answers your question. The and mm-hmm. maybe the answer is very broad, but it's uh, addressing some of it.
0: Mm-hmm. So th- there's no like neo communist movement, like th- like a, um, something that would be analogous to like the neo Nazis. Is there like a neo communist movement throughout the like this this population of people who are longing for for the the days of the old regime? the
1: communist uh, uh the communist parties have been outlawed throughout the region so it's mm-hmm. illegal you cannot form it in similarly to what uh, happened in germany after mm-hmm. uh, world war ii with the um, uh, far right parties mm-hmm. um but there is again there are these populistic parties that mm-hmm. are kind of hair parties of the they are obviously labeled differently yeah yeah they, they inherited a lot of the rhetoric and the people and they are gaining electoral success big
0: mm-hmm.
1: on the talked in the beginning. the people who are nostalgic
0: mm-hmm. hmm. uh,
1: so they are they're doing actually quite well, and um, you know they, it's just a very um, uh, simple rhetoric they are using trying to uh, um, feed on people's fears, their insecurities um and um it you know until now it works, but not necessarily for a majority of the population, however, it's always good enough for them to have representation in the government, in the parliament
0: mhm mhm yeah when you when you mentioned purification i mean i'm I've been reading a lot about the French Revolution, and so yeah. like that yeah, that came yeah. up <laughs> that that was the first thing that I thought of um, yeah. but clearly it, it wasn't to that degree right you're nobody's robespierre isn't building a a statue to to worship logic (laughs) anywhere in in romania right um yeah so this is really interesting stuff like this is (laughs) this is like proto-revolutionary like this is all social revolution stuff for sure um so i'm not gonna dork out about that <laughs> and inflict on anybody my work now. Um, let's talk about the the fracking thing. So, how did you get interested in like what what attracted you to to talking about so that? I
1: think it, this just happened because I I started teaching at Wilkes and I started just listening to public lectures or talking to people about fracking in Northeast PA what it meant for the region. It is very controversial still, but um, uh, just because it was a hot topic it was. I started connecting the dots. And I said, okay, so it's a hot topic here, but then back home, people were arrested and there were mass protests. And, uh, I, you know, just a, a simple idea that came in the back of my mind. How come it worked here? It didn't work at mm-hmm. all uh, there. That's yeah. how it... Um, it started.
0: So how how big were the protests? I mean, you've you've said a couple of times they were mass protests. Were they? Are we talking like thousands of people?
1: Tens of tens of thousands. Tens of, of thousands. But, wow. Uh, what ha- what the one that really got my uh, attention? It's in a very small town uh, in this uh, region of Romania that's the poorest. So mm-hmm. the town is called Borlad. It's in um, a very poor. Uh, county called uh, Vaslui, and basically in that town, the entire population went on the street and protested for uh, for days. So it's not that the it was uh, very impressive in terms of actual numbers, but even more impressive if you think that they were these were all the people in that city. <laughs> Virtually everyone was on the street. And that's where I started with my interviews. And I met maybe the small group of uh, leaders of the movement. And it was a very fascinating conversation with uh, a local priest uh, that got very much involved uh, and who, you know, uh, spoke with me. for. It was an interview that lasted maybe seven hours or so. uh, And he poured all his soul of it. And then we had a very interesting collection of a lawyer, a geologist, um, a former general, I guess. <laughs> uh, so they, yes. it was just, I think a, a group of, you know, close friends, acquaintances, but each of them approached it from a different manner. And they are very, very passionate about the environment, about sell, say, saving their land. And I understood where they come from because... In the U.S., before we do anything in terms of, let's say, drilling, exploration, exploitation, we have some form of public consultation. We have some form of debate, discussion, information. Nothing like this happened. So in Eastern Europe, they just went and, you know, started drilling. And people got got very scared by that. And then when they heard about possible consequences for the Water. But I don't even go that far because I'm not a, you know, geologist. I'm not a biologist. I don't want to write too much about uh, the, the, you know, uh, effects of, of fracking on the environment. What really uh, made an impression on me is how these people reacted. And then, uh, so these were mass protests in very small cities. Then, of course, there were protests in the... Uh, in Bucharest, in the capital, those were also very, very large. Um, and I'll have to, you know, uh, dig deeper and and just uh, get the actual numbers. But they were, and they they, they were in solidarity with the smaller town where it started. And that's where you see the actual new civil society that's basically concerned with environmental uh, issues. So in Bucharest, I talk to people who are extremely educated university professors uh um specialists in geology in uh, in, um, in environmental science um who really uh, kind of were the leaders of this mass movement mm-hmm. and then a third level was in the village again where the where the equipment actually was was drilling there maybe a few hundred people, but again, everyone in the village and from the neighboring village, everyone came. uh, They changed themselves to the equipment. They created a lot of noise. Uh, And for many weeks, they are kind of the the heart of the country. There was nothing else we we talked about. And one interesting finding uh, more, and I I obviously did not know this going into this, was that women were the spokespeople women were the most vocal mm-hmm. uh, in this movement at least in the village, so mm-hmm. that was that was very impressive,
0: just like the early days of the French Revolution <laughs> <laughs> um, this is incredible i can 't believe an entire town <laughs> protested i i can't imagine that ever happening here um,
1: yeah, I actually thought a lot about this. how come people here do not protest where did we lose that spirit of, of course, I mean me and you, we have participated together, yes. we went to some protest, but you know, it's, it's smaller scale and it mm-hmm. doesn't really last uh, yeah. somehow, I don't know, maybe it's the legacy of repression and 50 years of somebody um, uh, keeping you shut, uh, you know, keeping your mouth shut against your will, maybe it's this legacy that kind of gave more courage to people
0: that, uh, I think, okay. could be part of it. I think it's really uh, an environmental issue, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the I, I've been... Like, the revolutions class that I taught in the fall, um, like, all of the different, um, at least sociological, perspectives on it talk about, like, the environment is usually something that plays a, a part as a catalyst, right? Um, not always. Like, that's it, not necessarily true with the American Revolution, but um, for others, I mean, the French Revolution happens... Um, as much as 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 politics as it does you know multiple bad harvests (laughs) and creates a bread shortage and then you know france explodes so here like people are are worried that their water is going to be poisoned understandably so and if they're already living hand to mouth which sounds like a lot of people are surviving day to day and now you hear your water is going to go away then that's when that's when we're going to start going on the on the offensive yes. you know
1: uh, a very small last detail is that so in a country like the US if you suddenly have any natural resources underneath your house or your property uh, you would get something out of it right and and many people in Pennsylvania uh, for instance mm-hmm. people i talk to uh, got money and sometimes very significant amount of money so um, they are drilling, but you can, you know, maybe relocate, get a house, move somewhere else. Well, uh, in former communist countries, uh, the state, the government, owns everything that's underneath your house, mm-hmm. so you don't get anything at all. You might just get the the poisoned water, but you have you cannot benefit financially in any right. way. Yeah, uh, and that's another big part of the um
0: of the puzzle right yeah because it's at that point the logic is that the resource belongs to everybody right
1: yeah sadly this would be great if it worked like this in in theory in in practice it's mostly uh it goes back to taxes to the government and then Mm. no one knows where
0: yeah
1: (laughs) money actually goes i i was thinking about you know how how things should work in a uh, developed advanced democracy because as I was walking to those villages, as I was driving with my father to those villages, uh, and I just want to take a second and thank my dad for driving me, <laughs> taking me there because I would have never made it in those super remote yeah. parts of the country if he was not a good driver. And also, you know, <laughs> so, you know um, just Uh, good enough to to navigate and um, long story short they need roads, they need infrastructure Uh, but no government in 30 years ever thought of investing one cent in that part of the world. They are Mm -hmm. the forgotten people of Europe Mm -hmm. Uh, and of course there are no in, in some other parts of Romania a lot has been done with European Union money not uh, where uh, the protest happened, and the government itself uh, did not do that much. So, and we are talking—I'm not at all talking about highways. <laughs> this we we uh, we have just a few miles of highway. I think in Romania overall, I'm talking about a very basic country road, mm-hmm. right? Uh, so those people would need something. They have no cell phone connection. They have no uh, access to Basic health care to good education, so that they they would actually they would be the ones in need of, of some gov- you know uh, government resources, but they 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 were abandoned. They didn't get it.
0: So I'm curious, um, how were you able to get interviews with people? I mean, did your did your dad have did your dad know people, or did you <laughs> just like wander people. into town and and say? I'm, this, I'm a professor here to talk to you about <laughs> you all got really mad and I want to know more about why. Like I'm just like, how did you make, how did those initial conversations go?
1: So I guess the best way I could describe it is a snowball effect. Mm-hmm. So I started in Bucharest where I basically, I started with a call on Facebook. I I, I I very rarely use social media for my research, but that was one example. And Romania is big on Facebook, so it's not, not the... twitter or a nation Mm -hmm. instagram everyone is on facebook so i ask people if you know anyone involved in the in the um riots if you can give me and i got a few names and uh, i started with the two journalists actually one journalist who put together a website with a lot of resources and they were that The first journalist I I talked to was incredibly helpful and knowledgeable and gave me a few at the end of the interview, a few other people to talk to and then a few other people. And eventually I got into that small town. So I kind of went from from the capital to the small town and then from the small town, finding that group. I started with the priest and they sent me to specific people in the village and then that's where my father helped because my father um, is not book smart but is very street smart and he has a very good personality. So he kind of broke the ice and helped me uh, talk to people, <laughs> introduce to people. He was not actively participating; he was more in the shadow. Uh-huh. But he really facilitated uh, getting. And then I have to be honest. Now again, this is a. I was obviously always 100% honest in the sense that I work at an American university and I'm working on a book, but I emphasize the fact that I'm from Romania and I'm from a city that's not too far away, and I speak with the same accent as they do, and I'm just, you know, uh, somebody among them. So that, I believe, also helped. I don't know how they would have reacted if an American professor with an American accent. If
0: I showed up, I'm probably not getting the same type of... (laughs)
1: Yeah, so I tried to, you know, and I think they wanted, um, and I want now exactly as they would do. I want somebody to tell their story. Yeah. Um, I want somebody to write their story in English, Mm -hmm. and I want some work uh, left there uh, about what happened. um, And about how the the state and, you know, Uh, The riot police uh, really sent people to to hospital and uh, how sadly in the hospital that they did not receive the care they need Mm -hmm. Uh, and and all these uh, stories.
0: So I want to know more about the priest because you've mentioned him a couple of times, but before I get to that, um, I'm curious, did you, and all the people that you talked to, did anybody have, or did you ever get the sense that people had any types of, like, conspiracy theories that they believed about this? Because, you know, in the U.S., whenever there's any kind of big event, um, a protest or, or anything now, um, there's, within minutes, it seems like, all kinds of conspiracy theories popping up, right? Um, on the left and the right, politically, about what's really going on. And so I'm, I'm curious, like, is that something that was happening in Romania with, with the fracking and the protests around that? Were there, were the people who who believed that shell um was going that this was the first step in something that was much more nefarious or evil um or i guess just in general did they have uh any kinds of any any kinds of ideas about what was going on that maybe were a little outrageous or um maybe not necessarily based in the reality of the situation
1: another excellent question <laughs> that I, I say this also because I thought about this this morning right so we are in the middle of this pandemic and mm-hmm. it seems like every day there's another conspiracy theory yes So in a, in a period like this it's, it's, it's a very fertile ground for a lot of conspiracy theories mm-hmm. especially because it's very difficult to know your sources mm-hmm. um, now, now I have to say Well, uh, I I did these interviews, I believe, two summers ago, so I have to uh, revisit my uh, interviews. Um, Sometimes people would talk about uh, not so much a, a conspiracy between the energy policy and the government, but about how basically Chevron, for instance, uh represents uh, primarily american interests and nothing would really go back and benefit them i don't i don't think it really fits into the traditional conspiracy theory uh but it was more about you know uh the interest that these foreign companies will have i interpreted more as a fear of the unknown the fear of you know something coming from uh, way uh, far, and and I I actually uh, every time uh, people were kind of maybe exaggerating let's say their findings, I saw a clear uh, link between that and the fact that no one came to explain to them what exploration means, what could potentially maybe this could potentially even benefit them in one way or another. So what I have uh, discovered through my interviews, as a kind of for me the a very strong explanatory factor, was the fact that no one came to talk to them before starting drilling, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and because of that, sometimes they exaggerated their uh, their links. Um, yeah. So i I'll, I'll have to again revisit my interviews and see as I reread them if. Uh, I find more traces of conspiracy
0: theories. I'm just just curious. Just part of the fun of these is just thinking out loud.
1: Yeah, through, yeah, through yeah.
0: stuff, <laughs> not trying to make you sweat. Um, so, what was the priest like? What um, seven hours with him? I yeah. can't imagine. <laughs>
1: and he's not only a priest; He's is a, a a formal leader of a, a Romanian Orthodox Church in that region. I didn't read recently if he's still in that position, but he's uh, one of the most charismatic people I, I talk to definitely in my life, extremely knowledgeable, extremely involved. Uh, it is very, very rare in Romania that a religious figure will get involved um, in something like that. Uh-huh. Uh, I, I would say it's maybe one of the Few cases, if not only. More recently, there are cases of of priests involved in maybe uh, more charity work, or you know, taking care of uh, poor uh, uh, children, abandoned children. They are they are active and vocal in that regard. But it's quite unique what he did and how he um, formed this coalition of people against him. so around him. So it's just my uh, my thoughts are that it's. Um, uh, somebody who deeply cared about his land, his people, uh, and started this crusade. Kind mm-hmm. of, um, uh, he himself, I think, was surprised of how soon, uh, how how fast things evolved and how fast things escalated, and how he became the leader of a movement. He didn't wanna go there, but he had. Uh, my impression is that he really had the best interests of people, uh, at heart. Um, and he wanted to, to protect the, the land and the water.
0: Mm-hmm. So, um, how are you able to bring some of your scholarship into your classrooms, into your teaching?
1: Very, um, good question. <laughs> so I'm going to start actually with my, uh, this new project. I thought. um, public policy at Wilkes and also energy and environmental policy and while I teach these classes I take a few lectures and talk specifically about fracking I go over the US story, I tell them how things differed state from state uh, here and many students already know what happened in Pennsylvania, they might know somebody who I don't know received money for um, allowing drilling in their backyard or they know somebody who is very much against this. So they had some uh, personal exposure just because they live in Northeast PA. Mm-hmm. And then I compare and contrast and I tell them the story of my uh, of what I found out in my uh, interviews and how things are different in other uh uh, parts of the world now this worked well because i think our n- n- students right now this new generation is really passionate about the environment like this is something that really click yes. clicks um, uh, with them and obviously the students taking environmental policy also have a self-selection bias yeah so they take that class because they do want to know more about it so I was uh, quite uh, quite mm-hmm. successful. I also got a few research grants and I had a few uh, research assistants. Uh, so they helped me uh, gather some data more about oil price and that so hopefully at least some of them uh, learned more about doing research by helping me um that uh, just happened to be this way. Now, mm-hmm. the the first part, my dissertation, is where I really think I, I made a big, big difference. And I'm usually more modest when I assess my <laughs> impact. Uh, yeah. But every time I teach, a, and I teach every other year, a class, uh, it's called um, the Changing Face of Eastern Europe. I, uh, again, take a few weeks and discuss transitional justice, and discuss a lot the, the abuses of the totalitarian, authoritarian regimes. And I give examples and I kind of take the students back in time. And then I tell the story of transitional justice, what worked, what didn't work. And that's, I, I really see a sparkle in their eyes. That's because it's so new. Mm-hmm. And it's probably the very first time when our students at the small liberal arts college in Northeast PA hear about these things and then I come from there so I bring this authenticity mm-hmm. I have my accent right? <laughs> I have my stories and I uh, I can see that's also my most popular class I you know uh, <laughs> reading the reviews of uh, the dairy valves also makes me feel better so I would say I feel that's a very palpable uh, success because I tell them about uh time when they are obviously not uh, uh, alive, our students are now born in late 1990s, beginning of 2000s, right? So this is way before they were born. And they also never heard of it in other contexts. At school, it's not taught. So I Mm -hmm. think just opening their eyes, exposing them to something they never heard before really makes a difference.
0: Yeah, so in the revolutions class I taught I asked them very early on about um what are what if anything would be something that they would be willing to risk their lives for um besides their family, right? So it can't be anything personal to them or any private property. Like are there are there concepts or ideals that they would be willing to risk their lives for? And I I asked that with like a, a pretty fair amount of concern that I was going to get like A lot of pro-Trump responses from our students, Um, and overwhelmingly, they said uh, the environment and environmental issues would be the things that they would be willing to to make big sacrifices in their lives for, which is good in in one sense and a little (sighs) scary in another. A little not scary, a little to me like a little depressing (laughs) in another. I don't know if they would pull the same way now, um, yeah, but. But yeah, I mean, just to kind of echo again what you were saying about them being interested in hearing about, like, your experiences. When I when I talked to them about different riots and stuff um, from all of these big revolutions, they were, I think, fascinated and horrified <laughs> at the same time. Because they're. I think our students might hear a little bit about some of the peaceful marches, peaceful in quotes, marches from the civil rights movement. Um, but they never hear about people protesting beyond that and so being like yeah like this was the boston massacre <laughs> and it just happened because people were mad or the women's march on versailles or uh the slave riots in haiti <laughs> and 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 all of this stuff they I, I just think they don't learn enough about people who actually resist um any type of government or corporate authority.
1: Absolutely. And because you you mentioned this, I think it's a good uh, follow-up. So in uh, fall 2019, it seems like this was an eternity ago, but it was basically this academic (laughs) year.
0: Um,
1: We commemorated 30 years since the fall of the Berlin Wall. So I was on maternity leave at that time, but I did want to mark this event at our university through a talk, a, a public lecture, And I had a a lecture together with our um, uh, history friend and colleague, John Kukin, in which uh, we talked about the series of revolutions that ended um, communist minister in Europe. And I'll make my point in in just a second. So Mm -hmm. basically, the story is that throughout the region, there have been peaceful revolutions. So in the Czech Republic, what was called the Velvet Revolution, still mass protests. Uh, But now no no lives have been lost, uh, um, no no victims. And then this culminated in in December, uh, at the end of December, with the only bloody revolution, uh, and that happened in Romania. So 1,106 people died, uh, many more were wounded. But what's very fascinating about this is that um, young people, and I mean students in college, have been at the forefront of this revolution. They did the revolution. They are the revolution. Mm-hmm. Uh, student protests also happened throughout the river. So even the Velvet Revolution in Bratislava and, and Prague was also uh, primarily led by student protests. Just that there, it didn't had a, a dramatic... Uh, twist or, or, or end. Uh, in Romania, however, overwhelming majority of these people who mm-hmm. died, shot by the, by the people protecting the dictator, uh, were students. So uh, that's one point I made. I didn't really ask students at that talk uh, for what cause are you willing to, mm-hmm. to sacrifice your life, but I just want them to be aware that it was people just like them, sophomores, yep. Junior, seniors in college nineteen, twenty, twenty-one 21 years old that brought together a revolution not too long ago in 1989 and changed the faith of a country mm-hmm. and of course people were hungry so I don't want to undermine um, the, the, the economic impact but they also wanted freedom, they wanted to speak freely, they wanted no censorship, mm-hmm. no manipulation so this is what they mm-hmm. um um they primarily wanted one of the banners that really uh, made a huge impact for me is how uh, one of the protesters who was a student at the time. So and those students would be my parents generation right now. So would be in their 60s right now. Oh, was 50, 60 a huge banner um, saying um, we will die and we will be free. Mm-hmm. Uh, and another one uh, our children will be free so so we are doing all this for uh, the freedom of our uh, children that's, that's mm-hmm. very powerful so this is a story not so much related to my work but connected to what you just said mm-hmm. and I'm thinking also I should definitely be a guest lecturer next time you teach about <laughs> revolution <laughs> and if we have to do it online it's going to be even easier because I'll just record something
0: Oh yeah, I, um, yeah, I, because you were on maternity leave, a lot of my, and our, another one of our colleagues was also gone, um, I spent a lot of time last semester, um, talking with, um, the rest of the political science department at Wilkes University (laughs) about, about, um, various revolutions, and, um, yeah, it's just, I, I don't understand, like, if I could go and do my PhD again, like, I think I would try to focus on social movements and social change. Like that's how, how deeply problematic my obsession with this stuff has gotten over the last um, several months. Um, it's, it's really interesting how like the economic issues and, and environmental issues become married to like different political rhetoric um, by people who are maybe at the forefront of different revolutionary movements um the few older people who are able to kind of guide the the younger <laughs> energy in in particular directions right but i i think you're right like i i try to tell our students all the time that if they wanted to take over Wilkesbury, pennsylvania it would be very easy for them to do it right in the last in the in the primary this past i guess it would have been a year ago in april the incumbent mayor got 800 votes <laughs> In a, in a city of about thirty-five thousand people, wow. <laughs> and so if if our students and you know students at some of our our sister colleges uh, worked together, <laughs> regardless of political affiliation, they would be able to win every seat on city council and the mayors and and maybe even take over county council too, and and they could do it in a landslide. Um, and they they do not they do not understand that. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I get very excited when I hear any of them showing any interest in running for office or doing anything like that. Uh, but it's it's sadly not often enough.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I'm really wondering now because they have they are experiencing like a an environmental crunch, not just from like the, the bigger um sorts of climate change issues that haven't really manifested where we live yet. Um, besides maybe extreme temperatures um, in the summer uh, with the pandemic going on and how that's changing their lives and a lot of the frustration that they have um, with their families who maybe aren't taking it seriously and who knows how our university is going to respond. We'll leave it at that. Uh, I think uh, like this might be the moment where some of them become really galvanized and start... I'm hoping become really galvanized and start trying to act more in their community instead of us having to find like the, the one or two students, <laughs> every cohort who really want to be energized and are ready to do all of that work. I'm, I'm really trying to be optimistic <laughs> about it. But I mean, that's what all of the research shows, right? Is that it takes, it's, it's only when these really disastrous moments happen in history that people have like the potential like their kinetic energy i think is is actualized if there was no pandemic and no climate disaster (laughs) then i think everything just kind of the status quo is able to go on but
1: absolutely and then there's also our responsibility and our side of the story because obviously i'm talking about my field Political science, um, you know, it's all about power and institutions and R-square because it's now more math applied to uh, political science. But it's also about activism. And we don't do that. We, we don't tell the stories of what happened in the past. We don't have enough classes that highlight that. Mm-hmm. So I'm also all in favor of political science uh, becoming Or going back to what it used to be, a Mm -hmm. a discipline that's also teaching students about just getting involved, getting involved, um, getting your facts right, right? So first of all, uh, uh, getting your information right, but then also taking it one step further, getting uh, more involved. So hopefully, Mm -hmm. I I, I do hope you're right, and this pandemic will be an eye-opener
0: yeah i I mean the more that i talk to people i think that academia has really done itself a disservice by siloing us i think a lot of us are doing very similar work but we're taught by generations before us that like no political science has to be very distinct from sociology and it's i guess like kind of but not really (laughs) you know and and because we are trained to be so competitive with each other and fighting over grants and and everything then we kind of lose the forest for the trees (laughs) right and and become like bureaucrats (laughs) fighting for a little bit of recognition from an institution that can't care about us and and clearly doesn't (laughs) and and what is lost from that is like we i don't think we're able to really teach our students as fully as we could right because we're we become more concerned about assessment and accreditation and um all of that stuff when really like i think there are probably multiple people where we work <laughs> who um if we were able to collaborate on a class together um could really activate something really fascinating in our students and just kind of like let them go <laughs> and say, good luck <laughs>
1: Yeah, I think our our two styles of teaching combined together would <laughs> <It's laughs> be very very fun. <laughs> we can write also a, an article on the pedagogy of that class. <laughs> oh,
0: I'm all for it. Yeah, How absolutely.
1: Combined to combine two very different teaching styles and, <laughs> and fields. I I fully agree with everything you said, and it, it even you know even one more uh, argument in favor of. Uh, Helping people who don't have tenure to talk about what they're doing, so it's it's really important what you're doing for 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 us
0: well i'm <laughs> as I've said um to multiple people before, I am nobody from nowhere <laughs> <laughs> i uh, yeah, I just feel like it's my responsibility to do this stuff. I mean, my path to tenure was was difficult um but not as difficult as other people, especially now with the market being what it is. Um, so whatever I can do, and it, I mean, it really does help. Like, I, I forget where, I forget who told this to me, but, um, we have, how can I say this politely? Uh, you kind of have to build the, the academic community that you want to see, right? And so that's what I'm doing with this podcast. And I guess by extension, now this conference, um, is to try to create like the community that I want to be a part of rather than, um, just kind of subtle for what is there <laughs> you know um not that and this is not like devaluing our coworkers or colleagues in any in any sense of the word but um i i want more <laughs> and and i think like like I, have, I said we're we
1: have, we have a lot of possibilities and potential where we are Uh, and a lot of cool people who i believe will be on board so that's the Mm -hmm. positive side
0: Mm -hmm. yeah i just think that and and again this is like part of the the change component right like social media and the internet makes projects like this possible where in the past it's just it would it never would have happened like the level of collaboration that we could pull off now so it's very exciting
1: I'm 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 very excited that we talked and now uh I also want to mention that things have been so crazy so I've been wanting to just send you this article which I will do at the end of this uh conversation is uh, I think an article that you'll enjoy reading about uh social media learning as a pedagogical tool okay uh Twitter and engagement in civil dialogue and, and public policy so it's written by, by a friend of mine and I um, uh, talked to her a lot about it at the conference I was in. I, I remembered it because you mentioned how we want to create a community with people who think alike and we uh, and that's, again, I, I try to you know, do that for a few years now. So she's one like-minded uh, individual and I think she she is doing a lot. She's basically teaching some classes on Twitter, Uh, writing about doing it so Mm -hmm. uh i'm I'm very fortunate this pandemic gave us the opportunity to slow down and talk about these things because in real life we never have time Mm -hmm. to talk about anything and we are just running
0: yes (laughs) yeah no please send me that and um let me say thank you for for coming on people are going to be i think riveted by the work that you're doing
1: (laughs) thank you so much Andy. thank you so much
0: Hey, Andy Wilzak again. So, I hope you enjoyed this week's show as much as we enjoyed putting it together. If you did, we would really appreciate it if you left us positive reviews, five-star ratings on iTunes and all the other podcast places that you can do this stuff. And more importantly, this show thrives on word of mouth. So, we are doing this completely through social media. All of the guests that we've had are people that I found on Twitter. (laughs) So, if you are untenured and you are in any kind of academic discipline or you have an advanced degree and are working out in the field and you want an opportunity to come on the show and hype your stuff please reach out you can follow us on twitter at untenured or me at hey dr will that's h-e-y-d-r-w-i-l please send me a message on one or both accounts and we will book you on the show it doesn't matter what your discipline is i know that a lot of Our previous interviews have been sociology and criminology-based because that's my background, but I am open to anybody. So again, please rate and review the show. Tell your friends, tell your people about this, and I'll see you next week. Bye.